Good morning. You guys doing well? Good to have you with us. Uh, welcome to Desert Breeze Community Church. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Revelation chapter 19. Now, last night's service, we, uh, Saturday night service, they all went, oh. And then the first service, I had to prompt them, so let me prompt you. Okay, here we go. One, two, three. We're going to look at Revelation chapter 19. The, perfect. Perfect. Chapter 19, book of Revelation, end of the, the book, New Testament. We're going to be looking at verses 11 through 16. I love these uh, verses. They're powerful. This is our Vintage Jesus teaching series that Jesus most people miss. Where is he today is the question we're asking and answering. No one is more loved or hated than Jesus Christ, yet those who dare to look beyond the prejudices, the biases, uh, the deceptions that are current in our culture today and encounter the historical, biblical, vintage Jesus are never, ever the same. They are no longer suited for a normal life. When most people think of Jesus, they only think of his past humble incarnation and neglect his present glorious exaltation. If you were to see Jesus Today, if you were to encounter Jesus today, it would be similar to what the prophet Isaiah experienced in Isaiah 6. How many have ever read Isaiah 6 or know what I'm talking about? Show of hands. It's pretty powerful. We studied this at the beginning of the year. We did a series on encounters with God. We looked at that chapter. It is profound. It is an unbelievable chapter. Isaiah says, I saw the Lord, he was high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Does that sound a little more familiar to you? And he goes, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. And so if we encountered Christ today, it would be more like that. And in fact, the Apostle John said that Isaiah encountered Jesus. That's who he encountered, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says that in John chapter 12, verse 41. The Apostle John also had an encounter with the glorious, exalted Jesus in the book of Revelation. Remember they tried to boil him in a pot of oil to try to rid him, or rid themselves of him, because he proclaimed the love and the grace of God so vividly, so strongly, and they tried to kill him, they couldn't, because God wasn't finished with him, so he was exiled to the island of Patmos where he wrote the book of Revelation where he had this phenomenal encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ, and that's the text we're gonna read here today. I like what R.C. Sproul says. He says, if there is any dimension of the life and the work of Jesus that is woefully neglected in the life of the church today, I believe it is his ascension. You don't hear very many messages on the ascension of Christ. Now, we all know the baby born in, in Bethlehem, born in a manger, we've heard stories about that, and then he grew up and he started his ministry and phenomenal things happened as a result of that. We know that he went to the cross for you and I and then he was resurrected on the third day. But very few studies are done on the ascension and it's necessary for us to do a study on the ascension because it gives us his present glorious exaltation. Now, why is that so important? The reason why it's so important is because we tend to worry. Anybody out there have kind of some issue with worry? You ever have worry or anxiety or stress in your life? Show of hands, show of hands, okay. Worry, stress, anxiety. If you didn't raise your hand, it's probably because uh, you're medicating it. <laughs> and you're probably, you probably eat too much, sleep too much, drink too much, exercise too much, work too much, 
You probably do all of that, and that's how you kind of deal with your anxiety and your worry and your stress. We all have it, and I'm talking kind of inordinately. Part of it's a normal part of our life that kind of drives our lives in some regards, but, but I'm talking about the inordinate part of this worry. And you know what the cure to our worry is? It's worship. And worship rises or falls with our concept of God. So when we are anxious and stressed out and we worry, it's because we're, we have a very small view of God. And the cure to that is that we would begin to see this present, glorious, exalted Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And when we begin to see him more clearly, that's what begins to chase away the worries in our life. And that's my hope for us this morning. That's what I've been praying as it relates to this. We're gonna get a glimpse of Christ and his present glorious exaltation because that's what helps us with our stress, our worry, our anxiety, the stuff that we deal with in life. That he's, he's much bigger than anything we face and he is for us and not against us. And so that's where we're headed with our study. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's pray before we read our text and unpack these notes. Father God, there's nothing we enjoy more than encountering you, enjoying you, experiencing you in the singing of songs and the study of scripture through the work of your Holy Spirit along with our church family. God, it's our prayer that we would experience the beauty of Jesus, the glory of the gospel, and the power of your love this morning. God, open our eyes to wonderful things in your words so that we can see Christ more clearly in his, in his present glorious exaltation so that we can savor him more completely as our worship of him chases away every worry in our lives so that we can show him more contagiously to our family and friends during this holiday season for your glory and our joy in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Take a look at this wonderful text. I need to set this text up a bit. Kind of speaks for itself. But how many have ever seen the movie Braveheart? Braveheart? Braveheart, it's like one of my top favorite movies, top 10, top five, top one, somewhere around there, okay? And it's, it's really a great movie, but... Uh, the scene that I love the best is William Wallace, uh, he gets married and the English oppressors murder his bride. And he comes back into town riding a horse and it almost looks like he's, he's, he's surrendering, but he isn't. He's there to open up a can, okay? How many are familiar with that scene in the movie? Okay, just keep repeating that scene over and over again because he cleans house. All these English oppressors, especially what they do is pretty despicable and they murder her, they cut her throat and they're just doing pretty despicable things and so it's just like, yeah! He comes back in there and opens up a can and, and takes them out and, this, and he begins to rally all of Scotland based on true story, all of Scotland to push back against the English oppressors and does a phenomenal job at that. So what we have in this text, that what you see in that movie is nothing compared to what we have in this text. And what we're gonna, about to read, this is Jesus with his second coming bringing judgment upon the unrepentant 
until their blood flows like grapes crushed in a wine press. And that's the imagery that we have in this text. So it's Jesus coming back to this planet Earth, opening up a can, so to speak. I mean, it's just, it's pretty, pretty vicious stuff. Now, now, let me just say this, first of all. You need to understand this. This is kind of a no-brainer for me as far as what, what team I'm going to be a part of, okay? I'm, I'm on Jesus' team, especially when you read this, you go, yep, sign me up, I want to be a part of his team. Now, you're on one of two teams. With his first coming, he came to bear judgment, to take on the judgment that was meant for us on the cross so that our sins could, could be forgiven, he invites us into his family, we're part of his team. If we reject him, and he gives us plenty of time, you know, he gives us a lifetime. If we reject him, the Bible says that he will come back and bring judgment. And you will be part of those that will, will have the judgment of God upon you. And that's just that's what the Bible teaches. And so to me, it's like, yeah, I'm, I'm in. I'm giving my life to him. Yeah, I, I don't, I want him to bring judgment on me. I'm thankful that he bore my judgment. Oh my goodness, and the more I begin to understand that, the more I begin to ravish my heart. And I want to live my life for him. Now let me read this text. Chapter 19 of Revelation, starting at verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. I love horses, grew up around horses. This is a white horse. There's an exclamation mark at the end of this uh, sentence. A white horse, but this white horse is nothing compared to who's on this white horse. The one sitting on it called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. Have you ever looked at someone and they almost kind of, you felt like they could kind of penetrating right through you. It's like, oh, I don't even want to look them in the eyes. This is that right there. It's just like, oh my goodness. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. That's, that's pretty vicious. I mean, that's pretty heavy duty. And the name by which he is called is the Lord of God, or the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he will tread the winepress, here's that imagery, he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, of God the Almighty. This is the word of the Lord to us. Wow. So this is, that, this is that view of Jesus that when you begin to worship this Jesus, this glorious, exalted Jesus, that's who he is in his present uh, nature, and, and, and we're going to unpack this through our notes. This is what chases away the fears in your life, being on his team, being a part of who he is. And so let's, let's look at the implications of this, uh, to clarify, to help clarify where Jesus is today, we will trace the biblical account beginning with his final moment on earth, number one on your notes. Jesus' absence on earth is better for us right now than his presence. Now when Jesus uh, first told his disciples that he was departing in John 16, they had great sorrow. And then later on, he resurrects from the grave. He spends, how many days does he spend with his disciples after he resurrects from the grave? Anybody? 
40, yeah, 40 days. So he spends with them, and this before he ascends into heaven, and when he ascends into heaven, they have great joy. So they go from great sorrow to now great joy. What would be the difference? Well, many believers wish they could have, they could have been alive when Jesus walked this earth as if that would have been the ultimate experience. I mean, oftentimes I thought, wow, what would it have been like to be with Jesus? But Jesus explained to them that it was to their advantage that he depart. I've got it on your notes there, John 16, 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go, for if I do not go away, the helper, who's the helper? Holy Spirit. So the helper will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. So he's saying, and Jesus knew he could only be in one place at a time, but when I go to, I'm ascended into the heaven, into heaven, on the right side of the Father, as we will see as we work through this, I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit. And so in Acts chapter 2, we see the Holy Spirit being poured out. And oftentimes, uh, I come from a Pentecostal background, and we would preoccupy kind of on the tongues, but there's something much, uh, much more important here than tongues, and it's actually what they're saying and what they're proclaiming and what they're worshiping is that they are in verse 11, chapter two, they are telling the mighty works of God. So what, what's happening here is they're getting a glimpse of Jesus unlike they've ever had before to the degree that they're proclaiming the works of God almost to the point to where now they can become martyrs because that's what he says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and you will be my witnesses. The word witness literally means martyr. So what would, what would give you the perseverance, the tenacity, the strength, the courage, the compassion to be able to face even martyrdom? Maybe the work of the Holy Spirit in your life revealing to you Jesus unlike you've ever experienced before? Yes. That's what he said, that when I go away, the Holy Spirit will come and he's gonna reveal me to you unlike ever before. I will become so real to you that you will find and accept. I had something in my throat and I just... Coughed it back into the back of my throat, so excuse me just for a minute. He's really laughing back there a lot, isn't he? Someone might need to do the Heimlich on me here in just a minute. I'm going to ask you to come up and do it on me. I had something right here on my, my mouth. I went, oh, it got caught right there. Okay, never mind all that. I just totally distracted you. But that was a distraction to me. Okay, that feels much better. Okay, I think I can talk now. Okay, I'm good. Where were we? Okay. Telling the mighty works of God. Just before I got that thing lodged in my throat. Telling the mighty works of God. So I was meditating on this verse, Ephesians 3, 16 through 19. And, uh, and Paul is, it's a great prayer to pray for your family. This would be a prayer to pray for your family regularly. Ephesians 3, 16 through 19. I pray that out of his glorious riches that he may strengthen you with power through his Holy Spirit in your inner being. So what is he saying? He's saying, I want the Holy Spirit to be working in your life in such a way that you have internal strength. Internal strength for what? So that Christ may dwell in your heart. So you'd have this communion and union and relationship with God unlike ever before. Okay, okay, I like that. What, what more does he say? So that as Christ dwells in your heart, you may be rooted and established in love. So you get that idea of kind of being unshakable, strength, power, foundation. And so that you may know the, the height the height, the depth, the length, the width of his love that goes beyond our understanding so that you might be filled up with the fullness of God. The fullness of God. Yeah, I want that. Well, he's saying that's part of the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Romans 8, 11, we talked about this last week. If the spirit who raised Christ from the dead dwells in you, then the spirit that raised Christ from the dead will make alive your mortal body. That's pretty significant. 
So that's what Jesus is talking about here. That we have the Holy Spirit that, that resurrected Christ from the grave. The Holy Spirit lives within us. So what he's saying is that we're going to live a life that is incomparable to anybody else on this life apart from, from Christ. That there's a fullness of life, there's a quality of life that can be found only through the work and the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. That's the first thing. Okay, number two, this, as we work through this, they, they each one kind of get a little better as we uh, unpack this understanding of the ascension of Christ and Jesus in his present glorious uh, exaltation. Number two, Jesus physically ascended into heaven. So where's heaven? What is that about? Listen to what Jesus said in 1628. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. So I'm leaving the world, I'm going to the Father. He, he ascended into heaven. I've got a great book here. It's, uh, it's a great resource titled as Heaven, Randy Alcorn. It's a big volume because he's so exhaustive in going through Scripture and really answering a lot of questions that we often have about heaven. Um, and if you ever have that idea that you think heaven's boring, it's like, I'm not sure if I even want to go to heaven. You got a wrong idea of heaven, obviously, because you need to read what the Bible teaches, and that's what he does. He kind of goes through this. And he answers the question for us. I want to read a, uh, some excerpts here. As he answers the question, is the present heaven part of our universe or another? And he says here, the present heaven is normally invisible to those living on earth. For those who have trouble accepting the reality of an unseen realm, consider the perspective of cutting edge researchers who embrace string theory. Scientists at Yale, Princeton, and Stanford, among others, uh, postulate that there are 10 unobservable dimensions and likely an infinite number of imperceptible universes. If this is what leading scientists believe, why should anyone feel self-conscious about believing in one unobservable dimension, a realm containing angels, heaven, and hell? He continues on, gives a great illustration here, actually gives two that I'm going to share with you. The Bible teaches that sometimes humans are allowed to see into heaven and the example he uses here, Acts 7, 55 through 56, when Stephen was being stoned because of his faith in Christ, he gazed into heaven, this is what it says, and I quote from the text, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Now we know that Jesus is typically sitting at the right hand of God. Jesus is standing here, I believe. We've studied this in the past when we went to the, went to the book, of Revel, uh, book of Acts. I believe Jesus is welcoming, him, welcoming Stephen home. It's like he's cheering him on and saying, come on, Stephen, I'm bringing you home. So you get this picture. And so Jesus standing at the right hand of God, look, he said, this is Stephen, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God, Acts chapter 7, verse 55 through 56. The scripture tells us not that Stephen dreamed this, but that he actually saw it. So he's got, he's, has opportunity to look into heaven. Now, another illustration, one of my favorite illustrations in this is, uh, is this, the prophet Elisha asked uh, God to give his servant Gehazi, this is found in 2 Kings 6.17, so the Elisha asked God to give his servant Gehazi a glimpse of the invisible realm. Now why, why did he do that? Because Gehazi, the servant, is freaking out because they're surrounded by enemy nations. 
And he's like wringing his hands. He's like, oh, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? And Elisha's just cool, calm, and collected. He says, eh, you don't have a very good view of God. You've got a real small view of God here. So I'm going to pray that God will open your eyes so that you can begin to see that he is for us and not against us. He's going to take care of us. And that's exactly what he prays. He prays, oh, Lord, open his eyes so he may see. Then the Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he looked and saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha, 2 Kings 6.17. Now, Randy Alcorn goes on and says, it could be argued that these horses and chariots with angelic warriors exist beside us in our universe, but we are normally blind to them, or they may be in a universe beside ours that opens up into ours so that angelic beings and horses apparently can move between universes. Pretty profound, pretty interesting. I mean, this is really, uh, he goes into more detail as it relates to that. And so Jesus ascended into heaven. Let's uh, continue to walk through these notes and we're gonna find out a little bit more about what this heaven's about. Number three, Jesus is in heaven with Christians who have fallen asleep. I love that word picture the Bible gives us over and over again uh, that Jesus has fallen asleep or not Jesus, but Jesus said that to his disciples about Nicodemus. Oh, he's fallen asleep. And, and the Bible makes it very clear that, that death for believers is like taking a nap. You guys enjoy taking naps? The older you get, the more you'll enjoy it. Okay? When you're little, you don't like taking naps, okay? But when you get big and old like me, you love those naps. You won't be able to make it to the end of the day unless you take a nap. But what he's saying here is that a nap, you take a nap, it's like, it's like going to sleep and you wake up into the arms of the one who would rather die than to live all eternity without you. And he says it's like taking a nap. So if you haven't seen me for a while, and my wife says, hey, he's taking a nap. Hopefully, you know, either way, I guess it could be a good thing, but maybe I've gone to be with the Lord. Hey, yeah, that will be absolutely wonderful. And really it is, because look at 2 Corinthians 5.8. It says, yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. I memorized that in the King James growing up. Maybe you have too. To be absent in the body is to be what? Present with the Lord. So that's to be absent in the body is to be present with the Lord. Absent in the body, be present with the Lord. And he actually says, I would, rather, I would rather be that. I would rather be with the Lord. He also says that in Philippians 1, 21 through 23. And he's, he's struggling. This is the Apostle Paul. He's writing to the church in Philippi. And he's saying, hey, I'm torn between the two. I know that I need to be here to help you in your uh, Christian growth. But I also, oh my goodness, I also want to be with the Lord, which is better by far. Now let me read you uh, some quotes again because he's talking about better by far. And so the idea here, the question is, uh, what is life like in the present heaven? I'm just gonna give you a little bit of glimpse and we'll unpack the notes and kind of uh, see a little bit more. But this is from uh, Randy Alcorn's book, Heaven, and he makes 20 observations from Revelation 6, 9 through 11. Let me read Revelation 6, 9 through 11 and then I'll just make, I'm not gonna give you all 20, don't have time, I'll give you nine of them, of the observations. So let me read from the text. When the Lamb opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, how long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Then each of them was given a white robe, and they were told to wait a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and brothers who were to be killed as they had been was complete. 
Revelation 6, 9 through 11. Here's the observations from this. When these people died on earth, they relocated to heaven. That's the first thing we see in this. Second thing is that people in heaven will be remembered for their lives on earth. These were known and identified as one slain because of the testimony they had maintained. And then another observation he makes is that they called out. These people call out means that they are able to express themselves audibly and personally, might I say. And then they ask God to intervene on earth and to act on their behalf. So they're interacting with God, they're crying out to God, act on our behalf. And so you almost get this idea that they're kind of interceding there. They're talking to God saying, hey, deal with the mess that's, that's down there. And then those in heaven are free to ask God questions, which means they have an audience with God. People in the present heaven know what's happening on earth, so they kind of get a sense that they kind of know what's going on because they, they say, hey, the martyrs know enough to realize that those who killed them have not been judged yet. And then the martyrs clearly remember their lives on earth. The martyrs wearing white robes suggests a possibility of actual physical forms because disembodied spirits presumably don't wear robes. And here's my last one I'll give you. This is the ninth one out of 20. The people of God in heaven have a strong familial connection with those on earth who are called their fellow servants and brothers. And of course, he gives many more insights just from that text alone which is pretty fascinating. Um, so, you know, sometimes you think you're just gonna be up there kind of floating around, kind of this bodiless spirit, uh, kind of numbed out to everything, and actually you, you get an idea that it's, it, it's gonna be pretty amazing, an interaction with God, and interaction with one another, and so let's continue to unpack these notes because we're gonna dive into this a little bit more. Um, number four, Jesus sits on a throne at the right hand of God, the Father, ruling and reigning as sovereign Lord of the universe. Um, so Jesus sits on a throne at the right hand of God. So we're talking about this ascension, right hand of God, the Father, ruling and reigning as the sovereign Lord of the universe. Hebrews, Hebrews 1, 3, he is the radiance, this is Jesus, he is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So think about this, so how does this all stay on course? How does our solar system keep from crashing into each other and all these planets and all the stuff that's out there? Well right here it says by the word of his power. And then it says after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And I gave you a number of other verses that talk about Jesus ruling and reigning the right hand of God, sovereign Lord of the universe. Now what are the implications of this? So let's start making some application as we look at this uh, Jesus in his present glorious, exalted uh, position. Um, implications of his sovereignty is that first of all, my plans have a limit. When I plan things, they have a limit. Proverbs 19.21, it says, many are the plans in a man's heart, but, is the, but it is the Lord's purpose that prevails. How many have ever made plans that they didn't work out the way you planned? Show of hands. And we all have. So did it frustrate you? It can. It can sink your boat. It can devastate you. Try to start a business. You want to get married. You want your kids to turn out a certain way. You have all these plans. They don't work out that way. And, and the Bible says that because of his sovereignty, he's ruling and reigning, 
that our plans really have a limit and he's the one that ultimately determines whether or not what plans and which plans succeed or not. By the way, let me just say as it relates to this, I, I forgot to say this, is that when people think he's ruling and reigning, well, if he's ruling and reigning, this place, this planet Earth is a mess. He needs to do a little better job. I don't know if you've ever thought like that. I have. I like, and then I realized, wait a minute, wait a minute. His first coming, he came to bear our judgment. And so in the meantime, he's giving people opportunity to make choices. And with those choices come consequences. And so predominantly people on this planet Earth have made the choice to rebel against God. Therefore, we have what? Sin brings suffering. We've rejected God. And so we have that, and so, so, he, so he, within this time period of his first coming and second coming, gives us opportunity to turn towards him, to turn back to him, because eventually he will come back to this planet Earth to settle the score, make things right, and, you know, and just uh, balance the books. He's going to do that, but he gives us opportunity to turn to him. And by the way, I like what Johnny Erickson taught who wrote a book on heaven too, which is really a great, great read, great understanding. And also her book on When God Weeps, a book on suffering, and she's known suffering firsthand being in a wheelchair her, for 30, 40 years. She says, God controls evil, otherwise evil would be out of control. She says something before that that's really profound too. She says that God allows what he hates to accomplish what he loves. He allows us to make choices and with those choices so that we could freely come to him and know him and to experience him. And, uh, and that has consequences, but God restrains evil, otherwise evil would be out of control. Can you imagine the evil that would be on this planet Earth if it hadn't been for the restraining work of the Holy Spirit? And so, and I think that's important. So our plans have a limit, and so I think it's important that when you make plans, you plan with, with God in mind as he leads and guides you, but however they turn out, learning to trust his loving, wise control in those plans knowing that he's perfect in love, infinite in wisdom, and unlimited in power, and that he, our dad knows best. Hey, they didn't work out. It's in his hands. I just trust him with that. But not only can we learn that as it relates to his sovereignty, my plans have a limit, but it kind of goes along with what we're saying here. My problems have a purpose. Your problems aren't random and out of control events that just happen to you. Your problems have a purpose. They're father-filtered. And, uh, and the more you understand that, the more you can be like uh, Joseph and have his 50-20 perspective. Genesis 50-20, you're familiar with his perspective? Remember his brothers sold him into slavery? Pretty despicable. He was in the pit, but through providential hand of God, he goes from the pit to the palace, second in command of all of Egypt. Guess who shows up? His brothers. And you'd think, man, he's going to get even now. But no, God had done such a work in his life, he brought healing to his life. And this is what, what uh, Joseph said to his brothers. He looked his perpetrators in the eyes and he said, you intended to harm me. So he was in touch with reality. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, for what is now being done, the saving of many lives God had purpose behind the pain that came into my life and oh my goodness how he has recycled the pain. Now I'm able to minister to many people as a result of that. That's amazing, isn't it? So think about the pain that you're going through. There's a purpose behind that pain and God's gonna use that powerfully in your life because, because of the fact that he is ruling and reigning and he's sovereign Lord of the universe. It's like the song we sang. God, God's love never fails. He's working everything for our good, Romans 8, 28. 
And so to the degree you believe that, to the degree you're not going to have bitterness rooted in your heart and spew the venom all over everybody around you. It brings healing. Amazing thing, God, my life's in your hands. May I live for your glory, God. May I honor you with my life. And here's the next thing, too. Because of his sovereignty, so his sovereignty implications, my plans have a limit, my problems have a purpose, and then my prayers have an impact. Because he's sovereign, listen, Jesus is not walking the corridors of heaven, wringing his hands, stressed out about the mess that's on this planet Earth. There's things that happen as a result of our prayers. In fact, in James 4.2, it says, you have not because what? Because you don't ask. You do without because you don't go to him and ask. He's sovereign. He's ruler. He longs to give as a father loves to give good gifts to his children. How much more does your father in heaven love to give good gifts to you? Jesus made that very clear. It also tells us in James 5.16 that the prayers of a righteous person, that does not mean a perfect person, that just means someone who's put their faith in Jesus, the prayers of a righteous person are powerful and effective. They've just received the gift of life in Christ Jesus, and, and, and now they have access into the throne room of God, and they know that their prayers are powerful and effective. There's things that happen when I, when I talk with God. Number five, Jesus intercedes as our living God-man mediator. Romans 8, 31 through 34. These are wonderful verses. I go to these verses almost regularly. You hear me quote them around here a lot. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? How many are familiar with those words? Oh, my goodness. Those are wonderful words. Even gets better as we go on. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things. Do you hear the rationale here? This is logic. He's saying, wait, 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 okay. You believe that he took care of your worst problem? Your worst problem was that you're gonna be eternally separated from God. You were, you were not even close to God. He reconciled you to God. So if he took care of your worst problem, guess what? He's got all the other problems covered. What are your other problems? Well, making kids meet, maybe. Maybe your spouse, you know, marriage, maybe your kids, maybe, you know, what is it? What is it that you're most stressed out about? If he took care, so this is what I do. As I'm kind of working through the issues of my life and I'm kind of stressed out about the the stuff in my life, I always go back to, wait a minute, he gave his life for me, therefore he's gonna take care of all of this. What am I stressing out over? This is the rationale that he's kind of walking us through here. He says, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him, graciously give us all things. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Anybody ever feel guilt and shame? Ain't coming from God. Ain't coming from God if you are, if you have the righteousness of Jesus, you put your faith in him. Yeah, he brings conviction to bring our hearts back to him, but, but if we're God's elect, who's gonna bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Remember, justification is more than just forgiveness of sins. It's an invitation into his family, into his love and presence. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. That's wonderful. Now, let me read on. Verse 25, it's not on your, uh, on your notes, but this is what verse 25, and now I'm gonna read uh, two quotes Here's the first one, uh, verse 35 goes like this. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Rhetorical question. 
He's saying, obviously, none of these things can, can separate us from God. Now, listen to what one theologian said uh, about uh, this text that we read. The design of God in this section of Romans 8 is to give you such a deep, firm, unshakable, God-wrought, blood-bought security in his all-conquering love that in these seven kinds of suffering, remember the seven kinds of suffering we just read? Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword, pretty much covers all. So that in these seven kinds of suffering, you will not curse him or forsake him or reproach him, but trust him and hold fast to him and be satisfied with him when all else is taken away. When all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. That's what he's wanting us to understand, that there's this unshakableness to our life. When everything else is shaking around us, nothing can separate us from his love. Jesus is interceding for us. He's at the right hand of the Father. I love what Robert Murray McShane, a dead theologian, says, if I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. Yet distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. You get a glimpse of that, you get a glimpse into, into heaven and begin to understand that God is for you and not against you. Game over, game over. You can face anything. He gives you what you need. That's, that's amazing, and, but we have to be reminded of that. That's why you're here, isn't it? Because I can remind you and I can remind me. I need to be reminded of this. I'm often overwhelmed, and I, and I too often put my... You know, my security, my, my, my contentment and joy in the people, things, and circumstances of my life. And I do that when I forget the gospel. I forget what he has for me. And, and it rattles me. And it rattles my world. So I've got to keep coming back, coming back to this. I've got to have this big view of God. And that's what helps to dispel the worry in my life. Let's go to the next point. It just gets better. It just keeps getting better as we work through these so, number six, Jesus is preparing a room for us in his Father's house. John 14, one through three. I've gone to these uh, verses many times for comfort. He says, let not your hearts be troubled. Okay, so how do we do that? He tells us, believe in God, believe also in me. So what he's saying is that it's unbelief that makes us feel rattled in life. So when, I'm, when I have this inordinate uh, anxiety or worry Beyond the normal, as I said, because there's a normal part of that that's part of how we deal with life and we work through life and it, and it motivates us and pushes us in, in a lot of good, healthy ways. We're talking about an inordinate kind of being troubled. It's because I'm really saying to God, I do not believe you have my best interest at heart. I don't believe that your love is perfect, your wisdom is infinite, and your power is uh, unlimited, and it's working in my behalf. That's what we're saying. That's why he says, so let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. And then he goes on to talk about what that looks like. Uh, and so uh, the foundation of faith is, is thinking. So he's saying, hey, think. Think about this. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, so he went to prepare a place for us. So this is pre-cross. So, 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 this, 
So how does he prepare a place for us? By dying on the cross. That's what he's talking about. But, but it's even more than that. He not only gives us access into the throne room of God, but he, it's a place in heaven. But notice what he, how he describes heaven for us a bit. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself. Well, he goes from place to, to person, to myself, that where I am, you may be also. So as you continue reading on in that text, this is the text in uh, John 14 where we got to verse 6 where he says, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. So I am the way to God. I am the very truth about God, but I am the very life of God. That when you put your faith in me, you're going to experience a life uh, un unlike anyone can apart from me. And uh, that's what he's talking about. But he goes from place to person. Why is that? I'll bring you to me. Let me read that again. It's, it's, it's pretty important to understand this. He says, and I go to prepare a place for you. I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am you may be also. What is he talking about here? Heaven is not a place as much as it is a person. That's what I believe he's talking about here. Being with God is what makes heaven heaven. Our longing for heaven is a longing for God to look into the eyes of the one who made us for his own good pleasure will give us joy beyond all measure. Imagine when you take your last breath on earth and you take that nap and you wake up into the arms of God and you look into his eyes. That's what he's describing here for us. We, I mean, that's, that's what we need more than anything. Philip, in this same text, he says, show us the Father and it will be enough for us. And Philip's onto something. He's just saying, man, if I can see the Father, I'm good. I can deal with life. The word that he uses here for enough, it is enough for us, is the word sufficient. It's the same word used in 2 Corinthians 12.9. You guys familiar with 12.9 with Paul? Thorn in the flesh, he's crying out. He's pretty stressed out. He's pretty anxious kind of angry, God, take this thorn from me, and Jesus says, my grace is what? It's sufficient. You've got what you need. I'm gonna be there for you. It's sufficient. Verse nine of this 14th chapter of John, Jesus says, if you have seen me, you've seen the Father. It's pretty profound, pretty significant. Believe in me, verse 12, believe in me, and you'll do greater works. Why? Because Jesus was limited to one place at a time. Now that we have the Holy Spirit in us, I mean, there's an exponential work of God through our lives. Wherever a Christian is, that's where the Holy Spirit is. That's the idea. Verse 16, he says, another helper. So just as I was with you, the Holy Spirit will be with you. I'm not gonna leave you as orphans. Verse 17 of this text, the Holy Spirit dwells with us and he will be in you. So what am I saying? The cure to a troubled heart is belief and belief is about seeing God. It's intimacy with God. How many are familiar with the story of Job in the Old Testament? He take a beating or what? You guys think, that's a beating I would never want. And yet Job never saw why he suffered. I've heard a lot of people say, if I just knew why I was suffering, then I could get through it. Job never knew. And by the way, that's not true. I don't think that's true. Job never saw why he suffered. But he saw God, and that was enough. He saw God and that was enough. That's what I pray every weekend. God, let us see you. Pull back the curtains of heaven. Let us see into, the, into heaven. Let us see Jesus in his glorious exaltation. Let us encounter you. 
Because that's what chases away the worries in our life, is to have an encounter with him, to, to, really, to really know him. So yes, we have the hope of heaven, and in heaven, as we said last weekend, everything bad and sad in this world will be untrue and be all the more glorious for having once been broken and lost. It's like waking up from a bad nightmare when we enter into heaven. 2 Corinthians 4.17, our light and momentary trials are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. And in heaven, we will have the happily ever after our hearts long for, but we don't have to wait for heaven. We can catch glimpses of God in the person and work of Jesus Christ through the study of God's word and the work of his Holy Spirit now. Right now, I hope that's why you come to church. I hope that's why you study God's word. I hope that's why you hang out with other Christians. Lord, give me a glimpse of you. Let me see you. May you become more vivid to my life through the work of your Holy Spirit. By the way, I believe that's the Spirit-filled life. Christ is more real than anything that you're facing. That's what we need. Okay, it gets a little better. Number seven, Jesus is enjoying an urban paradise. Revelations 21, 1 through 2. We're almost finished. Revelations 21, 1 through 2. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of where? Heaven. So this is in heaven. It's coming down out of heaven onto the earth, the new heavens and the new earth, from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. I love the picture of that. If you've been at weddings, and as the bride comes around the corner, walks down the aisle, everybody stands, and everybody goes, oh, wow, that's the idea that he wants us to have here in understanding this new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. And as you read the rest of Revelation 21, it describes this new Jerusalem as being quite spectacular beyond words. Luke 23, 43, Jesus said on the cross to one of the thieves who had repented, today you will be with me in, in paradise. The word paradise is the same word, when you translate Hebrew into Greek, it's the same word used to describe the Garden of Eden in Genesis. Isn't that fascinating when you begin to explore that? I love sunrises and sunsets over the desert. Anybody catch that, uh, that sunrise? If you were up early enough this last week, that, that bright red sky, I think it was like Tuesday or, or Wednesday. Oh, anybody, show of hands? That was, that was fascinating. It was unbelievable. I love sunrises and sunsets over the desert. I love tandem bike riding with my bride. I love eating pumpkin pie smothered with whipped cream. Anybody there? Ooh. How about pecan pie smothered with whipped cream? How about... Uh, Coconut cream pie smothered with whipped cream. Yes, yes. I love drinking coffee, honey latte smothered with whipped cream. They didn't give me any whipped cream on mine, though. Did you get whipped cream on yours? Okay. I'm going to take it back for a refill. I love drinking coffee and studying God's word with my friends at DB on weekends. The things we love, I could go through a whole list. You could, make, you could come up with your own list. The things we love in this life are just previews of the greater life to come with Jesus enjoying our urban paradise. The Bible is very clear about that. 
And if you've ever kind of thought, I don't want to go to heaven, you've got to read this, because he goes through the scriptures exhaustively and really um, helps you to understand that. I mean, it's just, it's fascinating. So what do we do in the meantime? Here it is, number eight. Jesus gives us power, his power and presence to us as we bring the gospel to the world. Matthew 28, 18 through 20, these are Jesus' last words. I would say that they're probably pretty important just before he ascends into heaven. He says, okay, let me give you your commissioning. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold... Anytime the Bible says behold, it's what he's saying is like, be captivated by this. Be overtaken by this. Understand this. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. I happen to believe, based on what he's saying here, is that you and I have no claim on God's presence or power unless we are his disciples who are involved in making other disciples. So let's ask the question, what does it mean to be a disciple? Let me give you a simple answer for that as we wrap things up here this morning. A disciple is someone who's living their life for God's glory. Well, how do we do that? By finding your deepest satisfaction in him. Because God is most glorified in us when we are most, what, satisfied in him. So when your feet hit the floor in the morning, you're doing everything you can to find your deepest satisfaction in him because that's how you bring most glory to him. And not only are you doing it for yourself, but you're helping others to do the exact same thing. I oftentimes will hear parents say, let me talk to parents just for a moment. I'll hear parents say, I just want my kids to be happy. How many have ever heard that before? Our society is filled with that. I just want my kids to be happy. Well, they could be happy doing something really, really bad. Okay, how about this? I want my kids to be happy in the Lord. What do you guys think of that? Is that much better? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You want not just your kids, but you want your family and friends and your coworkers to be happy in the Lord. Why is that? Because listen to me, if you're happy in the Lord, no trial will overwhelm you. And no temptation will overtake you. That's a fact, just finding your satisfaction in him. God, give me a big view of you. The reason why you're not finding your sense of satisfaction in him is because you just have a real small view of him. And so God, give me a big view of you. Let me find my deepest satisfaction in you. Help others to see that there is no Christmas present like his presence in our lives. Let's pray. Would you bow your heads with me? Father, you have loved us so much and hated our sin and suffering that you sent your son to rescue us and give to us a life that is incomparable. Help us to see that the greatest gift of Christmas isn't placed under a tree, but he was hung on a tree. And after he he conquered Satan, sin, death, he ascended to heaven, exalted to glory, and because he rules and reigns over the universe and intercedes for us and pours out his Holy Spirit upon us, his church, may we be enthralled and empowered by his presence to take the gospel, this good news of great joy to this lost and dying world until he either returns or takes us home to be with him forever. We pray these things for your glory and our joy in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. amen. God bless you. Love you guys a lot.